Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Yes, the book of Acts. And I'm going to try and explain what we're up to this morning as efficiently as possible. You know, last week I preached through Matthew. And by that, I mean, like, literally the whole book of Matthew. We did the whole entire book in one message, giving a broad survey of the whole argument of Matthew's gospel. Why would we do that? Well, we did that because Matthew has a lot to say about the plan of God for the people of God, especially as it relates to Jews and Gentiles in the church. Matthew is the interface between the Old and New Testaments. And when seeking to advance our understanding of the nature of the people of God, few books are more helpful than Matthew. And this concern about the role of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan itself started from Matthew 10. We're normally preaching through Matthew's gospel, verse by verse. And Matthew 10, Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to go out and preach for the very first time. And his commission, though, is jarring because it's, it's so limited in scope. He forbids his disciples from reaching any of the Gentiles, and he tells them to only go reach Israel. But at the same time, though, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he gives a second great commission. And here he pretty much gives them opposite instructions. The command is now to take his gospel to all the nations. Their mission has turned global. We're left wondering, like, what, what gives? What, why this sudden change? What is God up to? And to find answers, we need to see the big picture. We're quite often down in the trees looking at one or two verses, but it's good to step back and just get a big picture overview of what God is doing. What are his big plans for redemptive history? And you can't deny the role of Israel in those plans. In the 2,000 years before Christ, God worked predominantly through this one nation, Israel, to bring about his plan of redemption, culminated with the coming of Jesus, who came as a Jew. At the same time, you can't deny that Israel rejected and crucified their own Messiah. And in the 2,000 years since, the church that Jesus formed has been dominated by Gentiles. These are the facts of church history, which we mostly just take for granted. But at the time, these were earth-shattering, unexpected things. Matthew, though, writes to let us know that this was the plan of God all along. Certain big themes emerge in the revelation of this plan we found last week. The first was that of Jewish priority. That the offer of salvation in the Messiah was meant to go to Israel first by God's calling and choosing. They received the first invites to the wedding. But we also saw the theme of Jewish rejection, where not only did they tear up their invitations, but they killed the groom. But in God's plan, that actually led to the third theme we found, that of Israel's rejection leading to Gentile salvation. God used the rejection of his chosen nation to become the catalyst for his mercy to go to all the nations. And just who would have thought this is how God would bring his gospel to the ends of the earth? We're meant to marvel at the wisdom of God's plan. It's profitable just for the, the development of our own faith, our own understanding to see that the big picture of God's plan and redemptive history, just what is he doing? And we, we did leave off last week with some unanswered questions, just given Israel's rejection of her Messiah and the Lord's rejection of Israel, what does that mean? What will become of this nation? Do they have any future hope? Or has the church replaced Israel? I want to know even more of God's redemptive plans. Don't you? Like, what, what is he up to? And all the plans we see foretold in Matthew, where do we go to, to see them played out and lived out? We go to the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to survey the book of Acts, the whole book of Acts. Now, if you heard that last week, you'll know this was not my original plan. I, I'd wanted to go from here over to Romans, where we get to hear from Paul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he just lays it all out for us. He, he cuts it straight. All the details of the plan of God for the people of God. I had only briefly wanted to touch on Acts and move on. But this past week, as I got into my study, I just I couldn't put the book of Acts down. It just reminded of 
how much treasure is in Acts, pulling out all this treasure, realizing again the book of Acts is itself a gold mine when it comes to the plan of God for the people of God, especially as it relates to Jew and Gentile in the church. And if you've been here for a while, you know I have a problem. You might call it a sickness. I just, I can't leave things out. It's hard. I mean, how do you leave behind all this treasure? This, this God's word is too rich. So I figured before we go to Romans, let's just, let's see part two of this story. It's a detour, but it's enriching. And really part two is found in the book of Acts. Realize the four gospels, they tell us the testimony of the, the person, the words, and the works of the Messiah and his coming. And then all the epistles of the New Testament, they explain to us, the church, the significance of the coming of the Christ for us. But it's the book of Acts that connects the dots between these two. It shows us in history the power of the gospel and the beginning of the church. And how else do you explain how this small group of Jews turned the world upside down? Rereading Acts, we read our history. Our roots go back to the book of Acts. But there we actually find that the roots of the church itself go back to Judaism. In Acts, we find that the early church was, at first, exclusively Jewish. As the church, we are a New Testament people, but we know we're still so rooted in the Old Testament. So, what changes? What doesn't change? What carries forward? What doesn't? What becomes of Israel? What is this church? Just how exclusive is the people of the Messiah? The epistles explain this all to us. Acts shows it to us. And so, like, if we're going to go down this rabbit hole again, just to better understand God's big picture plans for his people, I think this is another layer of foundation we need. And all the themes we see foretold in Matthew, they get acted out, no, no pun intended, in Acts, that of just Jewish priority, Jewish rejection, Gentile salvation. And Acts is the next part of the story. The Messiah has come, but then he was rejected, crucified by his own people. He resurrected, and thereafter he commissions his disciples to go make disciples of all the nations. And then he ascends, and that, that's another plot twist. He's going to leave them all behind. And now it's, it's their work to do with his power And that's how basically all four Gospels end. And we're left wondering what will become of this small band of disciples. This this Christ only made a few disciples. What are they going to do? Will anyone heed their report? Jesus promised he would build his church. How is he going to pull it off through them? Especially as it relates to Jews and Gentiles. And then where do we fit in all this as the church today? We're going to try and find out. So go to Acts chapter 1 as we begin. This will be another kind of whirlwind study. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And so I'll say like last time that the best thing you can do to follow along and not get lost is just to open your Bible and, and, and just survey with us through these chapters in Acts. Acts happens to have 28 chapters, just like Matthew has 28 chapters. You're not going to look at every single one. Just trying to focus on the big picture plan, but... To make this a little more manageable, the book of Acts can be cut in half. And really the first half, chapters 1 through 12, is, is all about just the beginning of the church. So let's just start there. First 12 chapters, the beginning of the church. Acts picks up right where the Gospels leave off. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that the risen Christ, he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days, instructing them about things concerning the kingdom of God. But now it's time for Jesus to ascend. That, that was always part of the plan. He was leaving. So he gathers his disciples. He gives them some final instructions now in Jerusalem. This is kind of like the Great Commission 2.0. I want you to turn your attention to verse 8. The disciples ask a really telling question in verse 6. They say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Just think like after 40 days of post-resurrection instruction from the risen Lord on the subject of the kingdom of God, the apostles still come away with the expectation that, like, is it now that the kingdom is being restored to Israel? Now, what this means and how Jesus responds dovetail perfectly with what Paul says in Romans. We're going to save those thoughts for next week. 
But for this survey of Acts, verse 8 is the theme verse of the whole book. Verse 8. He says, telling them to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. This one verse is the outline of the whole book of Acts. The whole book traces the fulfillment of this commission. By the power of the Spirit, the apostles take the witness of the risen Christ to all the nations. They don't finish. We're meant to pick up where where they left off. That's, That's our role. But one thing to keep in mind in this commission, it still starts with Israel. Even after the cross, this offer of salvation was meant to start in Jerusalem to go to the Jew first. We'll see that throughout. Now, chapter 2 marks the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The power they need to do this arrives. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes to permanently indwell believers. This signals the formal beginning of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And it's this spirit baptism that, by definition, places us in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The, this, the church begins formally here. After the Spirit descends on the apostles, they receive power, and they start to witness of the risen Christ. And so then Peter goes on after this. He gives the first gospel sermon ever. His audience is entirely Jews. And so what does he do? Well, first, he convicts them for killing the Messiah. But then he tells them, verse 23, he reminds them that this was still all according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Like, this was always part of the plan, believe it or not. Still, by God's mercy, they have a chance to repent and believe and receive their Messiah. It's not too late for Israel, which is pretty amazing. Even the sin of crucifying the Messiah can be forgiven. In God's grace, in this first sermon, 3,000 believe, and the church begins. Now, chapter 3 brings us Peter's second sermon. It's also to a Jewish audience. Same thing. He convicts them for crucifying their Messiah. Verse 15, you put to death the Lord of life, the Prince of life. But good news, God raised him from the dead. And again, by God's mercy, they, they still have a chance to believe in him. In fact, by God's choice, they are entitled to the first offer of the gospel. Now, Paul is the one who says in Romans 1.16, the gospel It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Peter very much talks the same way. Look down to verse 25 of chapter 3 near the end of his sermon. He's speaking to Jews. He says, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with your fathers. Verse 26, he says, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. For you first, Israel, God sent the Christ. If only they would turn from their wicked ways. Now, a remnant would, but just like Jesus foresaw in the book of Matthew, we will see fulfilled that that the majority of this nation will not turn from their wicked ways. Even worse, they're going to persecute all the Jews who do believe in Jesus. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. The apostles continue to preach in Jerusalem. They're still just only in Jerusalem. But they start to find the exact same opposition Jesus found. Just how they treated the master is how they treat his servants. The apostles are beaten. They're arrested. But we find that no opposition can stop God's plans. In fact, despite all the opposition they face in these chapters, that the church still grows. 2,000 more are added to their numbers. Go forward to chapter 6. Let's see an early summary verse. The message so far is just beginning, but it kind of seems like this gospel cannot be stopped even despite opposition. Chapter 6, verse 7, an early summary. It says, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Later, even 
some Pharisees would come around. Now, opposition would mount, rejection would increase, but still a growing remnant is being saved. Now, speaking of that mounting opposition, that's how chapters 6 and 7 continue. But the rage of the Jews toward Jesus and his followers, at this point, it all gets directed to one person, a man named Stephen. Chapter 6, Stephen, we learn, is the first of the seven deacons chosen. But chapter 6, verse 8, tells us Stephen was a man full of grace and power. He was working wonders while ministering the gospel. The Jews took note of him. He was was making an impact. And so they come up against him. But the thing is that they could not refute anything he said. It says they they could not contend with his words. So instead of conceding, well, they just resort to false accusation, personal attacks. Kind of sounds like today. Verse 12, though, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin. This is the same council of the Jews that, that just killed Jesus. And then chapter 7 records his defense. Stephen is allowed to deliver a message to the people. It's a powerful message. Whole sermon recorded for us. You know what he does? All he does is basically rehearse Israel's history from the beginning. Look at, look at what God has done for this nation, how he chose them, he favored them, he gave them every gift and advantage. But his punchline is that despite all this grace Israel received, they're unbelieving. They've been unbelieving from the beginning. They've been a rebellious and obstinate people from the beginning. So look now at the end, chapter 7, verse 51. Look at Stephen's scathing verdict on his own people. Chapter 7, verse 51. He says at the end, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Everything Stephen said in his message was true. Like the Jews had squandered their many privileges through unbelief time and time again. And last of all, even though the Messiah was sent to them first, they still proved stiff-necked. Nobody could refute Stephen's message. So the only thing they could do at this point was to do what they did to Jesus, and that is to silence him. So they rush at him, they haul him out of the city, and they stone him to death. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church, proving he valued Christ more than life. Now, with this event, though, the Jews just cross a line in the sand. No longer are they willing to tolerate this new little sect of Christians. They prove that they're, they're willing now to, to violently oppose them, to kill even, to put them down. Once again, Israel proves guilty, not just of rejecting the Messiah, rejecting the gospel, but trying to kill it. Now, that's not going to happen. This right here marks the first big transition in the book of Acts. Now, so far, these, these Christians, they've all been residing in Jerusalem. They've, they're all in Jerusalem. But God now providentially uses Stephen's death to force their witness to leave Jerusalem, just like, just like he told them. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, in the middle. It says, On that day, Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, verse 1 also introduces this guy named Saul, who was happily standing by in approval when Stephen was killed. We'll come back to that that guy later. But do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told his disciples to be his witnesses? It's from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Well, what do you know? Here in, in verse 1, by way of persecution, they're finally forced to bring the gospel to these regions, Judea and Samaria. It's time to see the Great Commission progress, and that's what chapter 8 is all about. Now, chapter 8 is about the introduction of the Samaritans to the church. 
And so far, every single believer in Christ has been a Jew. No exceptions. But that's about to change starting in Samaria, just like the Lord said it would. The Samaritans were regarded as, as Jew-Gentile hybrids. They were despised by the Jews, but not by the Lord. They were to be the mission field. So look at chapter 8, verse 4. Learn about Philip. This is not one of the 12 Philip. This is one of the deacons Philip. Verse 4. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Remember back in Matthew 10, that first commission, Jesus forbid his disciples from going to any of the cities of Samaria. But Philip realizes that, that things have changed. They are now the mission field. He preaches Christ to them, and it says many believed. And so Peter and John show up, the big guns, to see, like, is this true? Like, could it be the Samaritans are accepting Christ? They show up and they confirm the Samaritans have indeed received Christ. So verse 17, it says the apostles lay hands on them, at which point they receive the Holy Spirit. This is very significant. This was a special outward sign and proof to the apostles that the Samaritans were to be included in the church. Remember, the apostles received the Holy Spirit in a visible outward way. This was a sign to them that they received the exact same spirit in the same way. How can we exclude them now from this spirit community, the church? So the the borders of the people of God were expanding. Now, chapter 9. Getting to chapter 9, we we come back to this this guy named Saul. Verse 1 says he was still breathing threats and murder against Christians. Saul was the ringleader of the violent persecution that was going on. Now, I'm I'm sure you already know this is not a spoiler to you, but Saul is the guy who turns into Paul. This is his backstory. We learn about, in this chapter, how the risen Lord visits and appears to Saul while he's on this road to Damascus. A light from heaven flashes and literally blinds him. He cannot see. But in the exact same moment, the eyes of his heart open. He gains spiritual vision. As Paul himself would later write in 2 Corinthians 4, he finally beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. And just in in an instant, all of his rage and self-righteousness melted into submission and faith. Saul would later go by the name of Paul. He'd be recognized as the 13th apostle. He is a key figure in Acts, largely because of the leading role God gave him in, in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's just like Jesus taught back in Matthew 22, the parable of the marriage feast. As the first guests reject their invitation, well, the Lord sends his servants. He sends them out to the highways and the byways and says, just compel people to come in to the wedding feast. That's talking about the Gentiles. And Paul would be like the main servant going out, compelling the Gentiles to come in, taking the gospel to the nations. Look at verse 15. This is what the risen Lord says to Ananias, who's going to minister to this newly converted Paul. 9.15, the Lord says to Ananias, he says, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, you might guess that the Jews are immediately unhappy about Saul's conversion. He's defected to the other side. And so instantly, they want to kill him. And they try in Jerusalem. But they fail. He escapes. He goes north where he will remain for many years. We'll come back to Paul's story a little bit later in Acts. For now, though, after this conversion account, chapter 9 gives us another summary of the action. Verse 31. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. This church is not just Jewish anymore. It's now in Samaria. It's expanding. 
just understand the message so far, just by the power of the Spirit, there's no stopping this gospel. Even when it's met with opposition, violent rejection, this gospel is so powerful. It can crack the hardest of stone hearts. I mean, God can take even the most ardent adversary of the Lord Jesus and just instantly turn him into his most loyal servant. He can still do that. Just let this lesson deeply settle in your heart that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It still is. Now you look at that summary though. One thing's missing. This gospel so far has spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, just like the Lord said it would and should. But I thought it was also supposed to go to the ends of the earth. As of yet, there are still zero Gentiles in the church, not a single one. I mean, what do they care about Israel's Messiah anyway? But while the gospel is the power of God for the Jew first, it is also for the Greek. And so it is now time for the Gentiles to come in. And lo and behold, that's what chapter 10 is all about. You see that the flow here in God's plan and his providence Chapter 10 is where we learn about the first Gentile converts to Christ. It centers on a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion. Verse 2, though, says he was a devout man. He feared the God of Israel, and he was loyal to the Jews. He favored the Jews. The Jews referred to these guys as God-fearing Gentiles. They're kind of like a second-class citizen, not fully in the people of God, but a God-fearing Gentile. Now, an angel from the Lord visited him and told him to send for this man, Simon Peter, the apostle. Meanwhile, at the same time, God gave Peter his own vision. We obviously just can summarize here, but in this vision, God was telling Peter to take, kill, and eat all of these unclean animals. Look at Peter, what he says in the, in the vision, verse 14, this is chapter 10. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now, Peter awakes. He does not understand the vision he received. Doesn't, Doesn't make sense. But soon he will learn it's not just about food. It's about people. The Jews always regarded the Gentiles as unclean, but no more. And what do you know? The the moment Peter wakes up, guess who's at the door? The messengers from Cornelius are there with this corresponding vision. Lord said to send for you, so come with us. Peter goes, he goes to Cornelius' house. He finds that Cornelius has assembled a large crowd. And they're all anxiously waiting to hear a word from the Lord through this guy, Peter. And at this point, Peter finally understands what's going on here. Look at verse 28 of chapter 10. It says, Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Verse 34, jump down. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. With this, Peter preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. Because the good news of Jesus, it's for sinners, right? Pretty sure Gentiles are sinners too. It sounds like this gospel is the power of God for everyone. Verse 43 Near the end, a great one-sentence summary. Verse 43, he says at the end, Of him, Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell down among upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because... The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. You see what's going on here, right? This is the next big movement of the Holy Spirit. 
In God's sovereign grace, all of these Gentiles respond with belief. And so they receive the Holy Spirit outwardly with a visible sign. This is again, once again, proving to the Jews that these Gentiles are part of the church. They receive the same spirit in the same way the apostles did. Who can keep them out any longer? Now, after this episode, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. And it's probably not that surprising that the Jewish Christians, they hear that he went into the house and ate with Gentiles and they oppose him. Chapter 11, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Like, that's, that's forbidden. You're a Jew. But Peter, he gives them the full report of all that went down. He concludes with this, verse 17, chapter 11. He says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift of the Spirit as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And with this moment, the door to the Gentiles is, is officially open. The door has been opened. And we've said many times, it's not just a door, it's floodgates. The good news of Jesus Christ, it truly is meant for all the nations. And it's, it's about to go out. This small, regional, ethnic, Jewish movement of Christ's followers is about to go global and international. It's all it's meant to because the king of the Jews is also the king of kings. And already we see the first hints of change. Chapter 11 ends with these scattered Christians. Remember, they're all scattered now. Verse 19 says, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But verse 20 it says, some of them began to speak to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. They came to understand, like, I, I think this message is for everyone. And Luke records this, obviously, on purpose. He's, he's giving us a message in this true history. This was part of God's plan. Now, at this point, Chapter 12 is is Peter's arrest and deliverance, but we come to the end of the first half of Acts. And what have we seen? In one way or another, sometimes through intense persecution and opposition, it doesn't matter. The gospel of Jesus is spreading. The church is expanding. The Lord wanted his witnesses to spread his name from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles, And so far, that has not happened exhaustively, but it has happened categorically. Like the door to all the nations now, it's it's open. This church has begun. This doesn't mean the work is over. There's still going to be a lot of work required to bring this gospel now to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that is what the second half of Acts is all about. That work does not belong to one man, but we learn how at the beginning, the Lord happened to use one man to just jumpstart the engine of the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. That man was Paul. So the book of Acts hinges between chapter 12 and 13. In the first 12 chapters, the main character is Peter. It's his book. He's the pillar of the Jerusalem church. We hear five sermons from Peter. He's the one who first took the gospel to the Gentiles. But in God's plan, it would be Paul who would pick up that baton from Peter and then just race with it all over the Gentile world. And so as such, the remaining 16 chapters, they're essentially the chronicles of Paul. We get five sermons from Paul. We learn of his three missionary journeys, culminating with him bringing the gospel all the way to Rome. And together, I guess you could say, if the first 12 chapters show us the beginning of the church, these remaining chapters show us the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. The beginning of the time of the Gentiles. This is where the the seismic shift takes place. Paul, more than anyone, believed in Jewish priority. That the gospel was for the Jew first. But as the Jews continue to reject He's happy to go to the Gentiles, and they respond in, in hordes. They, they, 
the door to Israel was open, but only a few believers trickle through. But as soon as this door of the Gentiles pops open, they're just barging through, seeking the Lord. Now, we still have a lot of ground to cover. We're just going to stick to the big picture. But now, second half, we're going to see the beginning, the time of the Gentiles. And chapter 13 really sets the whole stage for what's to come. Chapter 13, Paul now sets off on his first missionary journey. He's going from town to town, proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues. At first, he only speaks to the Jews. We get Paul's first recorded sermon to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13. Same like Peter, he relates to them, hey, you killed your savior, verse 23. God sent you a savior. He's rejected and killed by Israel's leaders, but he rose again. There's still good news. It's meant for you first. Look at verse 38. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Apart from the works of the law, but through Christ alone, they can be saved. Now down in verse 43, some believe. Some believe. Verse 44 It says, by the next Sabbath, this was on a Sabbath. So the week later, it says the whole town had assembled. They want to hear this strange teaching from Paul, but they're all, they want to know. They're excited. The whole city has assembled, but history repeats itself because the same envy that led the Jews to kill Jesus rears its ugly head. Verse 45, look at this. This is when the Jews saw the crowds, just the popularity of Paul. It says they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And now listen to this response. This is key. Luke records on purpose, making no mistake, the significance of this occasion. Verse 46 says that Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God was spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Same phrase as Acts 1.8. It's time to go to the end of the earth. And notice Paul said it is necessary. We had to speak the gospel to you first. Just like we learned in Matthew, Jewish priority. It's just by God's calling, his choosing. But it only turned into Jewish rejection. They did not want the good news. And as a result, that priority shifted to the Gentiles. And it's time to compel them to enter God's kingdom. As we said before, it's amazing, but it was God's design that the hardened rejection of Israel would be the catalyst for the gospel to race into all the nations Look at verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. This really is a stunning turn of events. We take it for granted. The early church was entirely Jewish. Its culture would have been so different from today. It It was a Jewish movement. But as the rest of the nation rejected Jesus, this church would pretty quickly become just overwhelmingly Gentile. It's like Paul will say in chapter 14, verse 16. He says, in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own way. Meaning, in God's redemptive work, he he focused his, his plan, his grace, his revelation on Israel. The other nations left to their own devices. But now it is the time of the Gentiles, meaning God has determined to just open the floodgates of his mercy on the Gentiles. The chapter ends with the Jews being enraged and violently driving Paul and Barnabas out of town. This is just the first highlight from the first stop on the first missionary journey. But it just sets the pattern. This, now this, this exact same pattern just happens over and over again, all the way through. Every town they visit, from here on out, it's the same thing. They take the gospel to the Jews first. They reason in the synagogues, proving Jesus is the Christ. Every time, a little remnant believes, but most do not believe. 
Eventually, the Jews are hardened, so they go to the Gospels, or rather, the Gentiles, who believe in numbers. This enrages the Jews, who turn violent and run Paul out of town. Just kind of rinse and repeat. This is over and over again. Same story, different town. That's how all chapter 14 goes. This is showing us that Jewish rejection, it's not just isolated to Jerusalem. The Jews themselves were a scattered people at this point. But we're finding that collectively this whole nation appears to be hardened in unbelief. Now by the end of the chapter, he returns home from the first journey. Many people have believed, most of them Gentiles, many churches were planted. Chapter 14, verse 27, Paul gives a report to the church in Antioch, his home church. Verse 27, reporting all the things that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's the point. The plan of God now is shifting from Jew to Gentile. Now, like it still took time for the early church to comprehend just the scope and the implications of this seismic shift. Like, how do we make sense of this? It's all these Gentiles are believing, not, not that many Jews are believing. Presented some challenges, and that's what chapter 15 is all about. This is where we see the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles have to deal with the first significant false teaching that was attacking the church. This is coming from Jewish Christians, who would later be known as Judaizers. And they're just trying to make sense, like, how do we deal with these Gentiles? And they reasoned, hey, all these Gentiles coming in, they can come, but... They have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. Also known as justification by works. That was their claim. So Paul goes to the apostles and the elders who will settle this matter. They refute it. Peter stands up repeating how God sent him the Gentiles. These Gentiles received the exact same Holy Spirit in the same way. Look at verse 9 of chapter 15. Peter says that the God made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith. This salvation is not by works. It is by faith. Verse 11, he says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Everyone is damned by sin, Jew and Gentile. That means everyone can be saved by grace, Jew and Gentile. James chimes in. This is not the Apostle James. He's already been beheaded. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Verse 14, he affirms in verse uh, how, how God is taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. They, they recognize this Gentile flood in the church. This is from the Lord. What can we do? This is from the Lord. But in the end, they make clear that no, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They do not need to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Something Paul will have a thing or two to say about in his letter to the Romans. Now, God turned the page, chapter 16 through 18. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And there's so much good stuff in these three chapters. And we're pretty much going to skip over all of it. We just don't have time. But when it comes to God's plan among Jews and Gentiles, we see the same pattern. It's the exact same pattern. He once again takes the testimony of Jesus to the Jews in the synagogue. They inevitably reject. He goes to the Gentiles who respond in droves. The one difference, the second journey, is that now for the first time the gospel enters Europe. Chapter 16 sees the gospel enter Philippi. And then chapter 17, through Thessalonica, through Berea, it's a pretty good name, and then Athens. In chapter 18, Paul rounds off this trip through modern-day Greece and the, the bustling metropolis of Corinth. Look, I know this is repetitive, but go to chapter 18. It's kind of the point here. Chapter 18, verse 4, this is Paul in Corinth. It says he's reasoning with the Jews every Sabbath. Verse 5, solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. Look at chapter 18, verse 6. It says, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
It's just, it's over and over again. It's how it is. This is what Paul did each time. Only in Corinth, God had many people in that city. And Paul ended up staying there, ministering mostly to Gentiles for a year and a half. Eventually, he returns home. But as soon as the second missionary journey ends, the third one pretty much begins. We're moving fast, but Luke himself summarizes the third trip. In just the span of a few verses, he shows how Paul is covering thousands of miles, rounding the horn back through Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, making a round trip, continuing to preach the gospel, establish churches, strengthen churches. Now on this third trip though, Paul, he always had a final destination in mind. Do you know where it was? It was Jerusalem. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem. He had another reason for this. In all these churches he was visiting, he was collecting a love offering for the extremely impoverished, impoverished and suffering saints in Jerusalem. He wanted to bring it to them in person to go to the mother church. After that, chapter 19, verse 21 says that he desired to finally visit Rome. Now, at this time, a church had already started in Rome, apart from Paul. He did not plant that church, but he still wanted to go there, minister to them, be encouraged by their faith. That was his desire. Little did Paul know he would only make it to Rome in chains as a prisoner. Now, the remaining chapters of Acts 21 through 28, they all go together, and they're this grand saga of how the Apostle Paul finally brought the gospel to Rome. And time is short, we're just going to survey these chapters at 40,000 feet, but after Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's immediately seized by the Jews. They've not forgotten about him. They take him, they, they try to kill him, and they would have. But ironically, Paul is saved by the Romans, who see a riot forming. Especially when they learn that Paul is a Roman citizen, they refuse to hand him back over to the Jews who would have killed him. The Roman governor, Felix, keeps Paul alive. He keeps Paul not in jail, but in protective custody for two years. Now you get to chapter 25, though. This governor, Felix, is replaced by a man named Festus. And he wanted to gain favor among the Jews, so he was planning on handing Paul over to the Jews. And Paul knew this meant certain death. So when he stood trial before Festus, he knew he had to play the ace up his sleeve. Chapter 25, verse 11, he said, I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of any Roman citizen, basically to take your, your case to the Supreme Court, which back then was Caesar himself. You're going to go in front of Caesar himself. And Paul did this is the only way to remain in Roman custody and not fall into the hands of the Jews, which meant certain death. And so off to Rome he would go. Not before, though, preaching the gospel to Festus and King Agrippa. It's a marvelous sermon read in Acts 26. It ends with Agrippa himself saying in 26 verse 28, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, Acts 27 is Paul's momentous voyage to Rome by sea. One of the greatest seafaring chapters in all of ancient literature, like all of it. But we get to chapter 28, though. We got to go to the end. Now, just as the way Matthew ended his gospel, we found that it was the interpretive key for his message. It's the same thing with Luke and Acts. Paul finally arrives in Rome. He's not in prison. This is not a dungeon. That's the second Roman imprisonment where he's in a dungeon. This first one, he's in rented quarters under guard 24-7. <clears throat> but he's allowed to accept unlimited visitors. And so guess who he first summons to come see him? Verse 17, it's the leading Jews of Rome. He invites all the Jews. And to the very end, he's taking the gospel to the Jew first. These Jews didn't know about Paul. They're very curious to hear his teaching. They heard about Christians. They wanted to know more. And so it says they came to Paul in large numbers. And Paul was reasoning with them, proving to them from Moses and the prophets, this Jesus, he is the Christ. You got to believe me, he's the Christ. Verse 24 says, some were persuaded, but others would not believe. And we got to read this, 25 through 29, here at the end. Verse 25 it says, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After 
Paul had spoken one parting word. Here's, he knows they're not believing. He's got a final message for them. What does he say? He says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, verse 26, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Do you see why this ending is such a big deal? Paul has finally made it to the center of the known world, Rome. He was brought there, not by his own will, but certainly by God's will, to testify of the Lord Jesus. Jewish priority remained. He took that gospel to the Jew first. But everything said by the Lord and the prophets came to pass. These people, they're deaf, they're dumb, they're blind. That they can't see the glory of God in Christ. It was necessary to preach to them first. It was. But once their hardness of heart is confirmed, the rejection becomes the mechanism for turning to the Gentiles. They will listen. The time of the Jews is over. The time of the Gentiles has begun. And this is how the story of God's redemptive history ends in the book of Acts. It's just a stunning self-condemnation of Israel, but it means glory for the Gentiles. Now, we do have to add, though, and tease for next week, it's still not quite the end of the story for Israel and for the nations. Now, Jesus said something pretty interesting that only Luke records. Luke, in his gospel, Luke twenty-one twenty-four. he says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then Paul also says something interesting in Romans 11.25, 11.25, when he says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What do they mean by that? Now, there are still a few chapters left in God's plan for Israel and the nations. We hope to hear that the final part of that story next week when, Lord willing, we finally get to Romans, where this apostle to the Gentiles, we heard all about, he speaks and he lays it all out for us in a pretty clear manner. We look forward to that next week. As for now, the, the last two verses of Acts, they, I think, really drive the message home for us in this study. Verse 30. Speaking of Paul, it says, He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, at first glance, this is a very odd way to end a book. I mean, you've got Paul left in custody. He's awaiting trial before Caesar. He could die. And we're like, come on, Luke, you you can't do that to us. Like, what happens to Paul? What, What happens next? But you have to understand, the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. It's a biography of the progress of the gospel. And what has been the overall message? Since the moment Jesus commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses, they have been mistreated, persecuted, oppressed, reviled, slandered, beaten, whipped, stoned, arrested, even killed. I mean, you name it. They've suffered all manner of violence for the sake of Christ's name. Just like Jesus promised, the way they treated him, they're going to treat his witnesses. But what have we learned? Did that stop the progress of the gospel? No. In fact, you could argue it it probably sped it up. It's always been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, here we are at the end. We have God's like primary gospel messenger, Paul. He's the main guy, but, but he's imprisoned. We would grieve. We'd be so sad. What will happen? But is this really a hindrance? Like Paul will later write, in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is not imprisoned. In fact, you might think 
that the imprisonment of God's number one witness, like the main guy, I mean, that's just such a massive setback for the gospel. It's a massive hindrance for the gospel. But you have to see here, God sovereignly uses this to enable what? To enable the gospel to go out in Rome, verse 31, with all openness, unhindered. That's the point. Ironically, it was in chains, only in chains, that Paul was protected. He was safe, and he had total freedom to preach in Rome for two years. Outside of jail, that wouldn't happen. He would have got run out of town. He would have got killed. But he was protected, preserved, to preach with all openness, unhindered, in Rome for two years. It's actually one of the best ways to end a story. And it powerfully delivers a message we too need to hear and take away. You know, this morning, another ambitious study going through a whole book, but just, we've benefited in just further tracing God's redemptive plan in history. What's he doing? What are his plans for the nations? How do we fit in? He's working through Jews and Gentiles. Everything we saw predicted in Matthew gets fulfilled in Acts. We'll see it finally fully explained next week in Romans. But already, what a lesson to take away just the power of the gospel in the hands of a sovereign God. I hope you come away from Acts with just a deep confidence in the Lord to build his church. And that leads you to, to peace. No anxiety. I mean, the, the Lord promised he will build his church. It's his word. It's his body. It's his promise. He said he'll do it. He said not even the gates of Hades will overcome it. That's speaking of death. Not even death itself is a problem. He has, he has the keys to death in Hades. He has power over the grave. He can let people out. This church has been up against violent opposition from the beginning. And don't forget, it's not just the Jews. The Gentiles will rage just as much. But still, th- this is not a hindrance. Because this is a God who works all things together for good to those who love him. His gospel will spread in many unexpected ways. It never returns void. Just gain a deep unwavering confidence in the Lord to build his church. Even if we were to experience great persecution in America as Christians, it's not a cause for fear or concern. This whole building burns down. It's not a hindrance to the gospel. It might mean the Lord is preparing to do something great. You know, back in Acts 14.22, Paul, on the way home from his first trip, where he had just been stoned and left for dead, he almost was killed. But he's the one coming back to these churches, and he's encouraging them and their suffering to press on. And Acts 14.22 says that Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We need that same encouragement. We receive it just seeing the, the sovereign hand of God bring about his plan for his gospel to prevail in all the nations, despite opposition. That gospel will prevail. It will continue to spread. And we've we've also learned it will do so through faithful witnesses. It's said in Acts 17 that these disciples have turned the world upside down. How did that happen? How, How did they do that? This small band of disciples changed the world. How did they eventually overturn the Roman Empire? You know, it was not through culture wars or political reform. Now, I'm not saying we don't engage in culture and political reform. We certainly do when we can. But you just need to be convinced where the ultimate power of God is to change individuals and therefore nations. He placed it in his gospel. Say it again. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, but also the Greek. The power is in the foolishness of this message preached, Christ crucified. Not everyone will believe. We trust the Lord's will for that, but this is where he placed his power. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of his servants. Rather, as Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Why would we do that? As he says in the next verse, because God has saved us. He's called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Whether you're here, Jew or Gentile, 
in Christ, we've experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. And so now it is our turn to be the witnesses of the power of that good news to those around us. So let us witness. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, pray hallowed be your name. That's what we've learned this morning, the worth of your name. These disciples, the first, they knew it was worthy. The name of Christ, the name above all names, the only name given under heaven by which men can be saved. It's worthy. It's worthy to give your life to, to spreading, to telling others about. It's in the name of Christ and his gospel that has the power to, to change sinners, not just change, forgive. You've offered through Christ, through his work, the forgiveness of sins. And that's, that's a universal problem. Everyone in here this morning has had that problem. Some might still have it. We've all gone astray. It's not just Israel. We've all lived in hardness of heart, unbelief, rebellion, in our wicked ways. Who will turn from their wicked ways and live? We think that the Savior has come to make that turn possible. The gospel goes out. Even this morning, some who might not know you would turn from their wicked ways and see Christ, behold his glory, see the marvel of your plan and and believe, find this new life. And then they will find that this Savior is worthy. The one who called us with the holy calling is worthy of our lives, our witness, of us spending our time telling others about what great things the Lord has done for us. You saved us that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And so may we go, whether Jew or Gentile, to those sitting in darkness, that they might see the light of Christ. Convict us, encourage us, build us up in our own faith and understanding this morning through your word, which rings true. It is treasure. We give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.